Hello, everyone. Welcome to GradCast. We are the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Sabrina, and joining me tonight is Ariel Frame. Hey, everybody. And producing tonight is Chantal Lemire. And our guest is Simon Benoit. And Simon is joining us from the neuroscience department. And he is on the show tonight to talk about his research in Parkinson's disease. Simon, thanks so much for joining, coming in. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your research? Okay. Um, So I'm a second year PhD student in neuroscience, like you said. And uh, as you said as well, my uh, my focus is on Parkinson's disease and looking at uh, the different mechanisms that cause the disease as well as uh, potential therapeutics, so ways to treat Parkinson's disease. And uh, on the mechanism side, as I mentioned, um, we're looking at uh, the, the, the way the genome is expressed, so the way that people's DNA affects whether or not they, they may develop this disease. And um, on the therapy side, what's interesting is I work with a neurosurgeon And uh, this neurosurgeon does therapies for Parkinson's disease, this one particular therapy called deep brain stimulation. And it's a surgical therapy where you um, actually implant an electrode into the brain of the person that has Parkinson's disease. And uh, you stimulate it at a specific frequency that helps with a lot of the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Um, So during this surgery, he takes a small brain sample And from that brain sample, we actually get their DNA um, and other genetic materials that we can look at to see what's going on in the disease. And we're also able to culture cells from that brain sample. And those cells have particular qualities that uh, make them a really good possible candidate for therapies for Parkinson's disease. So I know that's a lot. And yeah. we can go more into details on what what exactly that is. Can you tell us what the disease is? Like for um, anyone who's new to it, like the symptoms, um, just any kind of background? Yeah, definitely. So most people are familiar with Alzheimer's disease. That's the most common neurodegenerative disease. Parkinson's is the second one after that. And uh, Parkinson's is characterized by what most people will see first is uh, motor symptoms. So these tremors or... Um, dyskinesias, which is uh, issues with movement. Um, There's also a number of other symptoms that you'll notice in people that have Parkinson's disease. They'll generally have a more hunched over appearance, have a shuffling gait, so that means that when they walk, they kind of shuffle and have smaller steps. Other things that you may notice really early on is loss of sense of smell. Um, You sometimes get people that write very small. There's just a, a number of different symptoms, but what causes these is actually the loss of a specific type of cells in the brain. Um, they're called uh, dopaminergic neurons, these neurons in one particular area of the brain that are causing these motor symptoms. But in addition, there's widespread loss of neurons and non-neuronal cells in the brain in this disease. So th- there's a variety of different symptoms. I'm not covering everything. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that isn't motor. There's cognitive symptoms, so things that affect the way that people even speak or or uh, their memory, the way they think. All, all of that can be affected in Parkinson's disease. Do they know the cause of it? Like, is it genetic? Is it environmental? There are a number of different theories on what causes Parkinson's disease. There is definitely a small percentage of people that have 
a genetic mutation that causes Parkinson's disease. That explains about 5% of cases, um, and they've found uh, about a handful of genes that cause Parkinson's. The rest of it, on the other hand, is called idiopathic Parkinson's disease, and we don't know exactly what causes it. But the mechanisms behind it um, are very complex and intermingled, so there's there's a variety of different things that go that go on. The, the most uh, prevalent, perhaps, explanation is that uh, there's issues with the energy metabolism of these cells. So the, the cells that end up dying off actually, actually use a lot of energy. And um, um, what happens in Parkinson's is they have difficulty maintaining the, the amount of energy that uh, they need to survive and it causes a lot of side effects and they end up be basically becoming kind of toxic to themselves and dying off. There's also what are called uh, protein aggregates. So proteins make up the majority of your body. They do all of the functions of the body in, in different ways. These proteins sometimes form kind of an agglomeration, a group of proteins that get stuck together and that is also toxic for the cells. So there's a bunch of different things going on that uh, cause these cells to die off, but there's no one explanation. Aging also has been attributed to it. There's just a number of different things that work together to eventually cause the symptoms that you see. Is this something that appears in older people, like as people age, then this is when we see it happening or can it happen with younger people? So generally speaking, it, it is something that happens more often as you get older. The average person will generally be in late 50s, early 60s, but you can also get early onset Parkinson's, which is much, much earlier. I know a couple of the, the patients that we've gotten samples from are in their 30s and 40s, so it does happen as well that it's earlier. But like I said, aging is also involved, so it's a risk factor. The more you age, the more likely you are to develop a disease like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's because there's more time for your body to have this neurodegeneration start up and continue to unfold. It's kind of an interesting topic, especially interesting uh, for me because it's uh, definitely uh, related to the field that I'm in. Uh, I also study neurodegenerative disease and the idea that, you know, your brain is, is just dying from the inside out, which is kind of a scary thought, but how is that happening and why is it happening? And uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, environmental factors and genetic factors, but you said that on, from your work in particular, you're looking at the genetic component in a way. And you also mentioned that you got samples from patients. So uh, what kind of samples do you work with? And do you uh, get it from patients who have these genetic markers that we explicitly know, the handful you mentioned, or ones that are more along the idiopathic, environmentally caused ones? As far as we know, all of the patients that we are getting these samples from are from the more idiopathic or none of them, as far as we know, have any of those known genetic mutations that cause Parkinson's disease. And what we're getting from these samples on the genetic side is we're getting samples of their DNA and also their RNA, which is actually a molecule that comes, that basically is kind of like a, a reverse copy of the DNA. And that's what goes out from the DNA and sends basically a message to these cells on, on what to do. I guess that's a, a simplified explanation, but it's a, a messenger 
that shows how much a gene is expressed, I guess is the best way to put it. And the way that we're looking at it is we're actually getting samples from these patients with Parkinson's disease, as well as samples from people that have otherwise healthy brains. And we want to see how that these expressed RNA molecules on the Parkinson's disease side are different than the ones on the healthy side. Um, so in order to do that, we, we basically end up doing sequencing, which is figuring out how, how many of each of these RNA molecules is on each side, and we compare to see what's going on that's different in Parkinson's that's not going on on the healthy side. And what have you found? So um, we found a lot of things. There are, in our particular cohort, we have six samples from healthy people, healthy people in quotations because they're undergoing surgery for something, but with otherwise healthy brain and six Parkinson's disease patients. And in that cohort, there's over 700 genes that are differentially expressed, which means they're different in our Parkinson's group. Some of the big things that have come out is that uh, there's big changes in inflammation processes. So like I mentioned, there, there's issues with this energy metabolism, the way that these cells are actually producing enough energy to maintain their normal functions. Um, and what happens when there's a, a dysregulation of inflammation is that all of these byproducts end up being released from this metabolism. And these byproducts are actually toxic, so the cell has to work to get rid of them. And if they can't maintain that, those become, those become toxic. So to see that there's a bunch of genes in this inflammatory group that are dysregulated is not necessarily surprising. And it's something that's been seen in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases. One thing I was sort of hinting at, but I wanted to ask, well, when I, when I did my under, undergraduate degree, uh, some research that I did involved looking at skin cells from uh, patients that had a disease where, where neurons in their eye degenerate. Uh, and we tried to infer from the skin cells how the skin cells looked, um, you know, what was going on in this uh, neurodegenerative disease with the eye. So what kind, what kind of sample are you getting from these patients and, and how can you be sure it's relative, um, relevant to the oh, actual brain? Yeah, so uh, yeah, they're, they're brain samples. <laughs> so they're, they're essentially exactly what your picture, uh, the surgeon goes in and takes a little piece of brain, like kind of, like an ice cream scooper, I guess, almost. <laughs> like super small, though, Tiny, right? tiny, okay. minuscule. <laughs> Not like, like we're a talking. Ice cream no, 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 no. We're talking okay. a minuscule <laughs> amount of cortex. Okay. Small so enough. just at the surface of the brain, it's in an area of the brain that is not, it's called a non-eloquent brain area. So it okay. doesn't have any specific important function. And most importantly, it doesn't cause any deficit whatsoever in the person. Okay. So there's no symptoms or, or anything that happens from taking that small brain sample. Okay. Uh, but what's great about this type of sample is that it is in the brain. And Parkinson's does affect widespread areas of the central nervous system. So that includes the cortex where, where we're taking the sample. And it's a great sample because you get an idea of exactly what's going on. So what Ariel was saying, he's, he was using skin samples to get an idea of what's going on in the eye. That's not really as obvious going from point A to point B. But if you're getting a sample directly from the brain, you get a pretty good idea of what's going on, both at the, the genetic level, the DNA level, and how it's being it's expressed. So, like, does that work then, Ariel? Like, when you were looking at the skin, 
could it tell you st- like i mean i get I mean, it like your whole body is related right so i guess um you know there's there's different ways to to actually like grow a cell such that it kind of um mimics um what's going on in in the in the diseased brain so similar to how people can mimic parkinson's disease and similar to parkinson's disease where you've got energy issues uh the the neurons in the eye actually i would argue are are more need more energy than uh than the region in the in the brain that's um that dies in 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 parkinson's disease so the particular disease i was looking into which i won't go into a lot of detail they think those those cells were dying because they needed so much energy and there was something in there that was causing it so what i did was grow the cells in a way that put a lot of stress on their ability to make energy so i grew them in in conditions that made what i the way i wrote it was they sort of mimic the metabolism of a neuron it's um you know it's kind of a, a couple steps away and it really speaks to how powerful uh a study to, uh where you work directly with neurons or neurons actually from a patient are so really two steps ahead uh to do the work that uh, simone is doing so when you talk about you both have mentioned this the, like the energy of the cell like like what do you mean it's using a lot of energy like is this because it's dying it's using up a lot of energy or no so um the the cell has a specific specific component of it that's responsible for producing most of the energy for its normal functions and neurons in particular use a lot of energy because they they need that energy to be able to perform their function in this case it's transmitting transmitting this electrical impulse along its axon there some of these neurons are actually extremely long they're a meter long or cool. so it, in order to actually propulse an electrical signal along the length of the cell takes a lot of energy relative to other cells. Maintaining the adequate amount of energy for these cells can can be quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and when there's an imbalance in, in that, then it, it becomes toxic for the cell, and that's why they die off. At least that's part of the explanation. We don't know how everything works together yet. Okay. Um, and uh, in in terms of what is the energy needed for in a neuron, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, uh, the reason one might expect uh, dopaminergic neurons, the ones that uh, Simone mentioned die in, die in Parkinson's disease, uh, might need more energy is because it takes energy to produce dopamine and 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 store it and send it out. And if you need more, if you need to always constantly be sending out dopamine, bringing it back in and producing it in a, a uh, in a regular fashion, then that that's a major cost for neurons in general, and mm-hmm. specifically for uh, presumably um, very very high cost for dopaminergic neurons. Yeah, exactly as you said, and the regular part is also important. These neurons fire in a tonic fashion, which means in a regular way to keep kind of a rhythm with the the part that they're attached to. Um, so they're always active and they have a really high metabolism. So they're susceptible to this kind of energy imbalance. And how is it different from Alzheimer's? Like is Alzheimer's, I don't know if you guys can answer this, but is it different cells that are affected? Mainly, okay. mainly, yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, there's, yes, there's different cells, but um, you'd be interested, I think, 
it was one big revelation that I had in my undergraduate degree to find out how much neurodegenerative diseases overlap. Yeah. And the point that Simone makes that's actually um, not emphasized that much when people talk about Parkinson's disease is the widespread effects in the rest of the brain. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, the front part, of, the front area of your brain, the cortex, is more associated with um, executive function and learning and memory and, and uh, those sorts of things that make you kind of smart and intelligence and stuff those aren't the things you'd expect when you uh to be affected in parkinson's disease because it was uh, originally classified as a as a motor disorder and the things you talked about were like tremors and movement but maybe simone can tell us a little bit about the spectrum of parkinson's disease and and the very various types where there are some that actually do have deficits in in like uh learning memory executive function and that sort of thing so Mm-hmm. So it is like Ariel says, it is a spectrum kind of like you hear with autism now, where you have people that have almost no motor deficits, but a lot of these memory and language issues. And uh, they've kind of started classifying them where the people with more cognitive side of things will end up being uh, classified as a dementia with Lewy bodies. Lewy bodies are these protein aggregates that I was talking about where the these little bits of protein get stuck together and that becomes toxic to this style. Um, and yeah, there, there's some people that'll be on the other end of the spectrum where it's almost all motor and they don't have a, any of these cognitive def- deficits. And kind of building on what Ariel was saying, I can kind of see neurodegenerative disease more of as like a, almost like a global brain phenomenon where some people will be more susceptible to, to losing cells in the cortex versus cells in um, the area that's affected in Parkinson's disease and um, all of these processes are kind of shared. This energy, these energy issues, these inflammation issues, they're all shared throughout these disorders and whether or not it becomes Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease might be for environmental reasons or genetic reasons or whatever. So I, there is a lot of overlap, like he says, for sure. And for your research, you talked a bit about what you found. What are you hoping to, like the goal or your what you can achieve? Okay, or so uh, yeah, on the genetic side of things, it's kind of uh, more exploratory. We're looking at what what's different. Um, and once we do figure out what's different, we want to go and see if any of those things that are different can be, um, if we can actually figure out a drug that, that can cause us to bring a change on that pathway or it's very exploratory on that side the other side of things that I didn't actually talk about is these cells that I can get from the same brain tissue and what's interesting about these this is more of the the treatment side um, is they're coming from the patient um, they're they're grown out and then they could potentially be used as what we call an autograph so a graft of cells that we can transplant back into this patient and those could be used for a number of different uh, in a number of different ways, such as as a way to deliver drugs to a specific part of the brain or as a way to replace some of the cells that are dying off. Uh, th- there's a number of different possibilities that I won't go into too much detail about, but um, what's really quite interesting about these cells is because they're coming from the actual patient, they're not going to cause any kind of immune response. They're not going to be rejected. Um, and they already have some a lot of properties coming from the brain that makes them a really good vehicle for these types of uh, cell-based therapies. I didn't go into too much detail on that before, but 
um, that's that's more what we're looking at on the treatment side of things. Simone, you're in a, you're in a kind of interesting position uh, as, mm-hmm. as a grad student because you remi- um, remind me again. You have two supervisors, right? I do. So uh, can you tell us again who who are the, who are your supervisors? So the the surgeon that I work with is called uh, Matthew Hebb. He's at uh, University Hospital, and I'm also supervised by uh, Suzanne Schmid, who kind of looks after um, the uh, animal side of things, which I haven't gone into any detail about, but we're testing out these cells in a bunch of different transplant models in, in animals. So um, she takes care of that side of things. She has that expertise. Um, so it is kind of a unique position to have two supervisors, and I think it's actually the best of both worlds in my case because, as you can imagine, a surgeon is pretty busy, so I always have a backup supervisor when he's in the OR or whatever. So that, that part is great, actually. So yeah, I mean, uh, just a comment. That's a that's a really cool cool position you're in, and and those are two um, pretty high level uh, <laughs> researchers here at Western. Um, Suzanne is um, Suzanne is the director of the neuroscience program mm-hmm. herself, and um, Matthew it was Matthew Hebb. Yeah, he's the son of um, the fa- famous. He's uh, uh, the nephew of. Oh, uh, nephew. Yeah. Of what, what's uh, what's the original Heb, <laughs> where Hebian theory comes uh, from? Good question. I'm blanking on it I right now, remember. but yeah. Anyway, there's a major, a major, one of the seminal books <laughs> on plasticity, neuronal plasticity, and how they actually can change the way they're connected together. Very famous in the neuroscience field. Right. <laughs> he came up with, or I don't know if he said exactly this, but people always say the little phrase. Oh, yeah, uh, neurons that fire together, that one. Fire together, wire together. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. So, anyway, <laughs> it's a neuroscience thing. Some kind thing. of neuroscience joke. <laughs> his um, his supervisor is relatively famous. Let's put oh, it like okay. that. Oh, um, okay. pretty cool. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Hebb, your supervisor, you said, so you said earlier that your supervisor does deep brain stimulation. So, yeah. is that, that's Dr. Hebb yeah. who's doing that. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting intervention mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, your brain is stimulated sort of by just acting in, in the world. And this is kind of mimicking that to an, in a more acute sense. Mm-hmm. So um, going back to what we were discussing earlier about, you know, the effects of the environment versus genetics, it kind of feels to me like deep brain stimulation is mimicking kind of what you would get in just your life. So in 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 a way is uh are the people who get deep brain stimulation i mean is there anything in life that you can do just without getting actually deep deep brain stimulation that uh kind of mimics that effect is there any environmental like any is there anything you can do as a treatment like at home without um <laughs> Like in your own kitchen? In your own kitchen, yes. <laughs> there, there is one in particular I'm okay, thinking of. Okay, what is it? <laughs> oh, do you know I, of any? I, I know what you're thinking of. Okay. But okay. Uh, I, I'm not sure that that actually mimics what deep brain stimulation is doing. I, I, yeah, I don't know if it's yeah. mimicking. But I, so I was one, I, that's why I was asking. <laughs> the, the understanding that uh, we have of deep brain stimulation is that it has this regular firing, which is kind of what I was talking about. Um that causes everything that's still there in the disease to fire like it used to, more or less. So it's it's called it's called entraining. It entrains the neurons that surround it to fire at this regular pace that it used to fire at, so that you're not getting these motor symptoms, these tremors that are caused by basically this not working properly. 
But what I think Ariel was referring to is the fact that cannabis helps a lot <laughs> with a lot of these motor symptoms. Well, let it, let it be known that I was actually talking about music therapy. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Either way. I was inferring music therapy, but cannabis sure. can help. Um, there is, uh, yeah, obviously evidence. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more I, about that. I don't know <laughs> what the mechanism is for that, but there, there are a lot of at least anecdotal evidence that uh, cannabis helps with these motor symptoms. And music therapy, I, I don't know too much about, other than it seems to help with a lot of the gait issues if um, you have a nice uh, solid beat to walk with. But other than that, I, I don't know too, too much about it. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a relatively new field, but I think it's it's interesting to say whether it's music or it's cannabis that because over ninety percent of people who get Parkinson's as well as other neurodegenerative diseases we don't really know why, and we can infer there was a, kind of a large environmental aspect. There's there are therapies that um, you can you can just engage in in your life. So <laughs> take the advice those little pieces of advice if you can where you can find them. Mm-hmm. So could it be something like if it's happening to people when they're 55, that's also like around when we retire and like people are less mentally stimulated or physically stimulated like that. Is that what um, you meant by environmental? Uh, like there was a shift that kind of causes it. Well, I'm, I'm guessing I'm being more general than, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not sure that there's going to be like a trigger at oh, some okay. point that's going to cause it more, more so like a, a, a buildup. Okay. So, I mean, uh, it, that's an interesting idea. Uh, so, that's my, maybe that should be my I, I can, I can speak to like, um, you know, engaging in cognitive activities mm-hmm. in terms of Alzheimer's disease, because that's my field. Mm-hmm. Um, but wh- wh- how does that sort of like, if, it, if it's a motor dis- disorder, does doing more motor activity in your life affect your uh, risk of getting um, Parkinson's disease? Not as far as I know, but I do know that different types of movement activities do help with compensating with some of these motor deficits so actually engaging your legs or your arms in some kind of activity either dancing or even just walking around can help slow down that no as far as preventing it i I don't think there's any research to that effect at all let's touch on one more thing that we didn't want to we don't want to miss the chillins that my parents talk about the The chillins chillins my parents my Parents are from South Africa, and maybe it's a, like a slang sort of thing, but he calls the kids. The kids. Oh, the oh. chillins. Chillins. My mom says that too, actually. Aww. Oh, there you go. It's broad, mm-hmm. reaching. So, from, Simon, from we heard South that. South Africa to <laughs> <laughs> French. We heard you're yeah. a parent. Yes. Can you tell us about your kids? Yeah, I have uh, two kids, uh, five and two. Um, actually, when I moved here to start graduate school, my son was one month old um, from, from Ottawa, and... Uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it, w- it was a challenge at first to have a newborn and start grad school for sure. Um, but I'm lucky to have a wife that helps me out a lot and we we figure out a way to get everything done and still keep my research moving. So it's, like I said, sometimes it's a challenge, but it's totally worth it. I've, I've been uh, commended on a few occasions on having children and still going to grad school and how it's actually going to end up being better having children um, younger, I guess. Totally. So when you're up all night with the newborn, then you still have to go to class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, that, that has passed yeah. a while ago. But the, those first few months were, were trying times. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> so, I mean, um, 
especially especially in a, a research-based degree where you're having to cons- constantly go in you know it's not you can't always you can't really do a lot of your work from home you can't be <laughs> taking those brain samples and doing, it, <laughs> doing the bench at home you can't do it no no and I, i'm lucky in some respects because my research isn't as uh as bad um at being on the weekends or in the evenings as a lot of other people's research might be i know a lot of like sleep researchers have to come in in the middle of the night or like people who do behavioral studies on animals come in all the time um i've been lucky where i don't have to do that too too much and Mm -hmm. i can keep it to a fairly sort of regular long schedule (laughs) (laughs) so simon if anyone um any of our listeners want to contact you about your research or learn more about your research um is there a way they can contact you yeah i'd be happy to uh, entertain any kind of question uh best way to reach me is on my email use my western one s-b-e-n-o-i at uwo.ca Thank you so much, Simon, for joining us tonight and sharing with you, uh, with us your research. You've been listening to GradCast. We are the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm Sabrina, your host. I was joined by Ariel. Producer is Chantel, and our guest is Simon Benoit. You can check us out on gradcast.ca online as well as you can email us at uh, gradcastradio at gmail.com. We are aired on CHRW 94.9 FM, the campus radio station. We come on air on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. If you are interested in being a, you know, guest on our show, sharing your research, or just joining and helping us on the committee or interviewing um, other students, you're welcome to email us or uh, check us out online. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone.